too many fantasy stories kill off the main character's mother before the first chapter even begins, which is why finding a story that actually centers mothers and parent-child relationships is truly special. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Gabriella Houston. Her debut fantasy novel, The Second Bell, is out now from Angry Robot. Gabriella and I discuss Slavic folklore, the portrayal of women in fantasy, and how to make time for writing when time for yourself is hard to come by. So now, let's head into the interview and see what Gabriella had to say. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Gabriella. Hello. Hey. Uh, it's so nice to have you here today. I know uh, with daylight savings and everything, I was triple checking and quadruple checking the calendar to make sure that I had actually the right time because that's been an issue in the past. It was a week's difference, I think, between uh, the UK and the US and that. Yes. And that's something that I only learned uh, a while ago through scheduling podcast interviews. So. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, I guess just to kick things off, I always like to ask people, uh, can you remember what first made you fall in love with speculative fiction? Well, I, I read wide, very widely since, since I was a kid, but I suppose first sort of speculative fiction you come across is as a child are fairy tales. And I always was really interested in folklore and um sort of different uh, mythologies, not necessarily just Slavic mythologies. Um, I was very heavily into the like Greek and Norse mythologies as a small child. And, and my family would buy me loads of books about, you know, King Arthur or dragon so-and-so or, you know, Chinese fairy tales. And from then on, it just sort of, <laughs> and, and that was it, I think. I just, I really like the, the settings where you get a completely unfamiliar world, but with elements that are familiar and relevant to you and your life. There's something very compelling about that. You're one of, I feel like, the people who actually have a pretty solid idea of where you got your start, I guess, in being interested in all that kinds of stuff. Because I know, like me, I would have a hard time telling you exactly where my interest developed. Probably if I was going way back, it would be fairy tales or like bedtime stories or something that have kind of the morals imparted to you and some kind of mythology involved with it. Yes. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of, especially, you know, I was... Uh, I, I started reading, you know, quite quite early, and and I I read, you know, I've read thousands of books in my life, so it's really hard sometimes to kind of really pinpoint in your memory that moment when when something grabbed your attention, because memory is not always sort of dependable. <laughs> but you know, there, there there were different sort of I got interested in different sort of aspects of. Uh, fantasy um sort of world building and and, and fantasy as, as a genre and different elements I, I remember um reading marion zimmer bradley when i was i think nine or ten something like that and i remember just loving how it was this this retelling of the arthurian legends that i knew from you know my storybooks and from the occasional sort of movie that popped up on the my parents' black and white TV at that point, I think. <laughs> but um, then to sort of have this retelling and sort of see that you can twist things and turn things, you know, turn them on, the, on their heads and focus on the stories of those characters that were sort of silent or seen as villains in the original fairy tales, I found that really, really interesting. And I, I mean, since a very young age, I was interested in... Um, sort of how women were, were represented in different stories and, and movies. And my uh, primary school library had um, this massive women's encyclopedia. It, it was basically a richly illustrated encyclopedia about all the horrible things that happened to women across the world. It's a very strange choice, <laughs> perhaps, for a okay. small child to sort of pick out. But that was very sort of influential in terms of how I sort of you know, saw the injustice, you know, down to the female characters and stories. And, and Marion Zimmer Bradley's sort of Mist of Avalon was um, especially focused on the, um, 
of a sort of tra- of the woman who's traditionally seen as a villain of the Arthurian legends, and I found that very compelling. I know uh, these days it feels like there's a lot more retellings and kind of reworkings of mythology, which is definitely interesting to see. I mean, it's possible that I just have not been aware of them, and I'm only now coming to realize that they're around, but. It seems like there's quite a few books coming out nowadays like that. I think you definitely have it right. I think there's definitely um, sort of the tide is changing when it comes to certain sort of uh, representations in fantasy. And I think part of it is definitely that a wider range of authors are basically allowed to, you know, into the sort of genre fiction sort of publishing world. And um that you know voices that haven't been heard before are heard now and uh, that women are um, not just allowed but encouraged to explore their own stories and to explore uh, you know women's stories i think that somewhere along the way the publishers have realized that since majority of readers of fiction are women uh, one one study i read was said that it was something like 80% wow. of all fiction books uh, are bought by women and read by women. You know, at some point, maybe publishers have realized that it's just good business to allow women to read stories that represent them. Yeah, who would have thought, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, (laughs) I imagine if you come from a sort of tradition where you see women's stories as fundamentally uninteresting, that would be quite a big step to sort of make that allowance. But um I'm I'm glad that we're on the other side of that, perhaps. Yes, me too. But yeah, so what was the spark, I guess, from being interested in all these stories when you were younger to actually wanting to become a writer? Again, I don't remember the starting point because I always made up stories and I wanted to be an art sort of writer illustrator for a very long time so i would uh draw little comic books uh, and 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 all that um that i would sort of write the script for and then i would illustrate and you know I've, i i wrote since a very young age you know but all kinds of things so i wrote like comic book scripts i wrote terrible poetry <laughs> my dad <laughs> dug up <laughs> some of it recently and sent it to me and it's truly awful i mean <laughs> you know a lot of unfinished short stories and, and novels and all that but it's all practice it's all practice it all brings you a little bit closer to the dream Yeah, I was going to say, I actually, your story reminded me, I actually just got sent in the mail from my parents uh, an old book from when I was nine years old, I think, uh, that I wrote called The Volcano Adventure. So I have not been brave enough to actually crack it open and read what I wrote back then, but uh, I guess I did uh, kind of get started at an early age. Well, that's fantastic, though. You see, it's like it doesn't. I mean, of course, it's terrible, and like a lot. I think a lot of people find that their early stories were just like pure <laughs> plagiarism. It's just you know, like, oh, I read this story and it was nice. I'm going to yep. write something just like it. But it's just it, it's nice, especially when you're sort of further along in the process to see it's like, oh, here's the beginnings, the humble beginnings of my. So far, I'm still humble. (laughs) Yeah, but I I think it's really interesting, too, because I guess your path in publishing is somewhat different than a lot of people I've talked to because your time in the publishing world doesn't get started with your debut book because you've been, I think you've said, a marketing underling, you've been an editor, a writer for hire. Uh, So can you talk a little bit about that? How did that come about? I mean, it sounds way more interesting in my short bio than it does if I expand on it. But um, (laughs) I studied um, English literature and I did my master's in um, literatures of modernity and postmodernity and postcolonialism. And uh, then I decided that I need to figure out you know, what to do with myself. And um, for a time, I was going to do a PhD, but I backed out of that at the very last minute and uh yeah and I just I thought you know what like I've always wanted to work with books and I've always wanted to write but when it comes to making actual money to pay the bills I need to figure out something to do and maybe you know if I'm not going into the academia then maybe I I need to sort of find something to do with books and I wish I had more sort of 
you know, direction <laughs> than that um, at that point. But I didn't, you know, they, they weren't getting a job in publishing has, you know, never been particularly easy. I started looking for my first job literally the month um, that the recession was announced oh, no. <laughs> in the international <laughs> papers in 2008. So that was a, a fun, you know, thing. But people didn't quite realize how bad it would be. Yet. So I got a job reasonably quick in academic publishing. And uh, so I was a marketing assistant. And uh, then I thought I wanted to be a teacher for a while after you know, it turns out I don't want to be a teacher. Um, and then I, you know, sp spent a long time because that was the sort of, you know, the depths of the recession, austerity, all that, like finding a job w was not easy at that point. So um, I was just doing all kinds of sort of temping and I did some, um, uh, I did some sort of freelance article writing for like a business and tech website. I Sub, two subjects I know virtually nothing about, but that apparently wasn't a problem. So, and then I got a job in uh, sort of fiction publishing, and from then on I moved into comics publishing, sort of on the editorial side. So that's that's the short of it. <laughs> that's my entire career in a nutshell. Very cool. I mean, that's kind of uh, bringing you back full circle to that wanting to be involved with the writing and illustrating process. Yes, I mean, obviously, uh, when you're on the other side of it, it doesn't. It doesn't sleep you as glamorous as all that, but I'm so grateful that I've had this, this experience because I think it's sort of, it's given me a big dose of sort of reality check of what it actually looks like and what to expect. And honestly, when I signed on with uh, Angry Robot, I was not expecting them to be as wonderful as they have been. So this was, it's always really, it's really nice experience to go into something like that and actually be pleasantly surprised because I think a great number of debut authors who haven't had a publishing experience when it's time for them to be published and they sort of see how, um, you know, little money in the budget there is for any sort of literary swag or how, um, how much work they have to do. And um, in order to sort of, get their book publicized in any way and i think it can be quite an unpleasant shock for people whereas i expected nothing <laughs> and then came <laughs> and then came to angry robot and they're just like worked with some really wonderful people who are just you know like caroline lamb who's a publicist for angry robot i mean she's just fantastic it's like all she got me like all those different like i wrote her pitches and she 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 um got me involved with so many bloggers and so many like websites. I was just quite, quite in awe. So, so that, that experience has been amazing because it's really set the bar low <laughs> for what to expect. And that's what you want. That's really what you want because then you kind of, you can only be positively surprised. Yeah, I know. As a reader, the tendency is to think that, you know, once you get that book deal or whatever, like you have it made, everything is set for the rest of your life, like you've arrived and that's it. Uh, but, you know, reality is not quite the same thing, I'm sure. Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, okay. So let's talk about something that I'm sure is a lot more uplifting. So let's talk a bit about women's representation in fantasy. Uh, because, yeah, uh, so I know historically it has not been excellent. I, I feel like it's getting a little bit better at least, but I'm guessing you have quite a few thoughts on this. I do. I mean, I wrote an article recently about um, sort of the representation and lack thereof in sort of traditional fantasy genre and uh, of, uh, of, of motherhood specifically. You know, I'm just really so amazed at like how many books are coming out all at once it seems about uh you know older women about the you know kick-ass mothers and grandmothers and and this has just been completely absent really i mean with some with a few notable exceptions it's just been absent from traditional sort of fantasy genre and and part of it is obviously because the number, you know, like what I touched on before is the kind of people who are really allowed 
entrance into the publishing industry, that was a very narrow sort of group, a narrow demographic. But also it's, it's just because I think women have like really fought for the right to kind of have their stories heard. And, 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 and there, there has been this shift where you get much more variety of, 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 of books. And, and that's just really wonderful. And I think, you know, traditionally, um, the fantasy genre comes from, it's very Eurocentric and it comes from, um, a lot of it is inspired by sort of medieval, um, folklore and medieval traditions. And, uh, that necessarily kind of translates into a very kind of man-centric outlook and very youth-centric outlook as well. There's so obviously women that do exist in the sort of traditional sort of fantasy books are um, usually sort of fit into very sort of narrow um, archetypes. So you get, you know, if, if a woman's older, then she's either this older evil stepmother villain kind of thing, or, or she's the crone, or you got the... Um, or evil sorceress, something like that. And you get nothing in between. So basically the age of 28 to 50, you have nothing. And then you have the young sort of female love interest who um, is uh, appealing in her youth and innocence, generally, with a few uh, cardboard cutout style sort of you know, kick-ass abilities just to show that she's a strong female character. So, you know, she can like, I don't know, swing a sword or something. But youth is something that uh, in European cultures sort of we tend to fetishize a little bit. And I'm glad to see that we're kind of experience sort of looking at women's experiences beyond that. So, um, you know, the, the woman's journey doesn't end when she gets married or when she has a baby, sort of, it's her personhood sort of can survive that. <laughs> and it's, it's nice to see that like more and more books really do reflect that. And you have, um, I was, I just finished um, a book by Genevieve Gornicek, um, The Witch's Heart, which is really, really interesting. So it really reads like, um, it, it has that kind of fairy tale rhythm to it, uh, to the prose, uh, like um, like some of the epics. It reads like a sort of lost chapter from the epics that it's inspired by, and it um, it talks about uh, sort of the mother of monsters, so the mother of uh, hell and Midgard serpent and um, and Fenrir, uh, the wolf Fenrir. and beyond knowing her name and uh, Angrid Volda. We don't really know much about her. And here you have this whole book that explores this, uh, you know, because there's such tremendous potential. You know, there's this old, powerful witch who has a relationship with Loki and has her children stolen from her. And, you know, it's just, and, and she has a power of her own that is both coveted and feared. And, and it's quite amazing, really, that nobody really thought to kind of look back and think like, this sounds interesting. Let's explore this. And so I'm, I'm really, really glad that Gornicek did it and that she did it so skillfully as well. So, and, and, and there's, you know, so many books like that uh, that are coming right now. It's just, you know, very hard on my wallet. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know. Uh, I say this all the time, but I feel like we're very lucky to be like fans of fantasy at this time in the world, uh, because I feel like there are so many wonderful, wonderful stories that just didn't really have the chance to come out before now. No, absolutely. I think I really believe that we live in a golden age of fantasy. And um, I mean, sci-fi, I don't really read sci-fi very much, so I can't really comment on that. But I, we definitely live in a golden age of fantasy. Yeah, my I'm I'm very similar to you. I think in my reading, uh, I feel like sci-fi is getting better, but I read like five to ten percent sci-fi, so it's not really uh, reading enough to really be able to speak knowledgeably. Mm, not not at all for me. I mean, I I can't. Um, I read a couple of um, sort of um, sci-fi books recently, but it's just I feel like I like you need to 
watched certain things and read certain things to have this kind of background knowledge to really access the sort of the reference points and to access like the um, just, just to sort of access the fullness of it, and I uh, and I can't I can't because I've never read fantasy, so sci-fi. Sorry, so it's it's just it, it's just sort of beyond my um, grasp at the moment. Yeah, I know. Like I've never seen Star Trek. I've never been all that into Star Wars. So there's a lot of like very huge touchstones. I feel like that I miss out on for a lot of science fiction. But yeah, so kind of before we leave too far away from motherhood as a topic, I did see that in your Tor.com interview slash cover reveal for The Second Bell, uh, you said that you didn't obtain the razor focus to be a writer until you became a mom. So I'm curious if you could elaborate on this and maybe talk about how you make that work, because I feel like if anything, you know, your available time goes way down with parenthood. Oh, it shrinks to an acorn, seriously. I mean, um... The thing is that, you know, you have all those, I mean, everybody has like all kinds of different kind of nebulous aspirations and dreams. And, and I've always dedicated a lot of time to my art, to writing, but I never really took it further. If you see what I mean, like a lot of it was kind of like, I'm doing this, like if this is like practice for me, this is something that... I'm doing to get better so that hopefully one day I'll feel like I'm good enough to try to do this professionally. And it's and when you sort of when you have this approach, you can go your whole life and not really push yourself, you know, um, in a more systematic way. And I mean, for me, like having a child sort of made me when my time that I had to myself has really shrunk. I realized that, you know, there's some things I have to uh, prioritize in my life. And there's some certain things that I need to make sure to make time for. This is no longer something I can do, you know, for, for a leisurely afternoon. If I want to write, if I want to write books and, you know, sell books, I need to be very disciplined and be very focused on on doing this and you know when there's something when you have so little time to yourself and you're tired and you have all those other obligations sort of weighing on you if you don't care about something you'll stop doing it and this is the thing that I really cared about the most so I made sure to make space for it in my life and uh, and I do write you know I try to um, write or do some writing related work every day and I'm quite disciplined in that in that respect. And but I wasn't before. I mean, so do you have any like advice on how to like make the most of your time if you only have, say, 30 minutes to an hour? Like, how do you normally approach that? Okay, so what I tend to do is uh, I mean, my, my kids are a tiny bit older now and they're very good at occupying themselves. So <laughs> that definitely helps. Um, but even when they were younger, you sort of I mean, you will find, you know, half an hour or something in your day. Like you might normally spend it watching Netflix or I don't know, playing with your phone or something. Um, so, you know, the, the time is there. It's not like that you have to lose sleep to do it. Um, I, I don't, I know that there's loads of writers who sort of wake up at 4 a.m. or something. I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um but I also like it, it helps to have someone you work with. For me, like I have um I have two writing buddies who I meet with regularly. One of them is a bit more busy. But I have one friend who I've seen almost every day since March last year, to be honest, since the first lockdown. And uh and we write on sort of we, we have each other on Zoom. So we sort of have each other's faces hovering in a corner of the screen and and we just do those sort of sprints, as we call them. So basically we do, you know, set the alarm for 15, 20, 25 minutes, usually, whatever you have. So 25 minutes, you know, until the alarm rings, you do nothing but focus on the work. And then you can have five, 10 minutes of a chat. I mean, she, she's a really good friend of mine, so it's usually longer. <laughs> and then you do another sprint. So we t try to make sure to have at least two sprints. Um, because especially under lockdown, when you can't go to a cafe and you yeah. know, 
can't motivate yourself with a hot croissant or something, you you will. It 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 can become quite of quite a chore unless you actually have that external motivation to to really focus your mind. Yeah, and uh, I know. I can't really think of a better external motivation than to have a friend holding me accountable, like staring at me from the corner of my screen while I'm supposed to be working. So uh, that, that exactly. sounds like a really it's good just, way to do it. <laughs> it's uh, And it's just a very pleasant way as well, because you, you sort of get that social contact as well as, uh, you know, in, in, in the sort of plague times, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. really nice to be able to have a daily dose of, you know, adult conversation about something that you're both interested in. And, and it's, um, and it's amazing to actually be able to talk through some ideas with someone as well. I was, um, the, the book I was, uh, writing, I was just talking for something like, I don't know how to solve this problem. I'm like, I haven't plotted it out. I don't know. Like, you know, this character is showing up in the situation and they're stuck and I'm stuck and I don't know what to do. And the, the mere process of re- recounting it and talking through the issue out loud gets your brain working in a different way and will get you to um, to sort of switch on a little bit more. It's like, oh, actually, I suppose she could do this. Yes, that would work. So having someone to talk through uh, plot points like this is amazing. Yeah. Um, and so I know uh, maybe not daily, but closer to weekly or so, you do now have a YouTube channel with a friend of yours who's a writer uh, called Bookish Take. So what can you tell us about this channel? So um, this is something I started with Caroline Hardacre. Uh, she's an Angry Robot uh, debut author of... Um, Composite Creatures, which is a um, sort of dis- medical dystopian hmm. near future kind of story. Okay. Um, and we just see, because we started chatting before about, um, I think our cats, I think we, we bonded <laughs> over our cats. And then we were just chatting almost every day. And I have had this idea to do um, a channel with another author for quite a while and I was like oh you'd be perfect for it what do you think it's really the two of us just chatting in a very informal way about our experiences of writing editing and like sort of run up to publication and everything related to that so you know we're not uh we're not seasoned writers with you know 30 books under our belts or something we're debut authors and this is our these are our experiences and um, so any tips or any advice that we got from someone else that you, sort of, you pick up along the way. And if this is a big learning curve, <laughs> getting your first book published. So you, so it's, it's just really nice to be able to share that. And it's, we have a few more sort of episodes coming out, uh, coming up uh, that we're quite excited about um, a couple of interviews and, things like that so it's um it's just really fun i mean we're do- we're not doing it for any particular reason you know except so it's just it's it's fun so we're gonna do it as for as long as it's fun and as long as people are watching yeah i mean that's kind of my philosophy with this podcast is it's just fun i get to talk to brilliant authors and everything and have a good time talking about fantasy and um, yeah as long as people are willing to listen keep giving it a shot yeah, the only good reason to do anything is because yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, if you don't love it, if you're not having a good time, is it really is it really that much worth it? But yeah, so we've we've kind of talked about your experiences as a writer and building up to this, but like you're here to talk about your book. So do you have a pitch for the second bell? So the second bell is Slavic mythology inspired standalone fantasy novel uh, about Astriga and her mother. So. Every now and again in this remote sort of village uh, in the mountains, uh, a child is born with two hearts. And um, the, the, such a child is considered to be a sugar, a monster who must be banished and uh, uh, sort of thrown out of the community. And every now and again, the child's mother decides to leave with her baby and join the community of sugars even higher up in the mountains. 
And the story is about one such mother and her child, who is Chida. And it sort of explores the concept of sort of social exclusion, social taboos, and uh, how we can internalize um, certain prejudices and how we can internalize this sort of societal fear about what our nature might or might not be. For me, part of the appeal initially was the whole Slavic mythology setting. Uh, it's not something I'm all that familiar with, uh, and it is really fascinating. I will admit I don't know that much about it, and my main introduction has been from the Witcher TV show. Uh, so I have no idea if that is even remotely a good introduction or at all accurate, but that's where I'm coming from. If you're enjoying it, then why not? <laughs> right? That's the main point. It's like, are you enjoying it? Because it's, you know, there's not going to be an exam at the end of this. So right. <laughs> it's, um, the, you know, uh, when, when it comes to my research into sort of Slavic mythologies, when I'm, uh, when I'm writing about them, you know, I, I, I do the sort of magpie approach, you know, this shines, this sparkles, I'm going to take this and put it in the book. It's not, it's not an academic work and it's definitely, um, so the second bell, I'm trying to preserve uh, what I consider to be the, like the, the feel of the Slavic mythologies. But the sugars in my book are not like the sugars in Witcher, right? They're not mindless monsters. They're not, um, they're not a cursed maiden. You know, they're something very different. And the fear is the same. The fear that people have of them is the same, but uh, their actual nature is quite different. Because um, I, I, I like to sort of twist things a little bit when I'm uh, when I'm taking a myth or when I'm talking about particular folklore. I like to uh, turn things on their heads a little bit and and just kind of and, and play with the concepts of why we see certain characters as evil or or, or not or what. Um, I'm more interested in the attitude that people have towards uh, those supernatural elements than I am in the supernatural elements themselves. Yeah. But the feel that I sort of wanted to preserve that I see as quite intrinsic to the um, Slavic mythologies um, sort of more widely is that basically darkness lurks everywhere. That's the main thing. When you, when you start sort of reading about the um, Slavic uh, folklore and sort of traditions, there's danger everywhere. So the danger is in your own home, in the, in the forest, in the field, in the water, in the very air you breathe. Everything is out there to get you, basically. And unless you know the rules and unless you know what to do, what to say, and how to bargain if you really sort of press into a corner, then you're going to be on the losing side of a very unequal battle, basically. So there's a lot of kind of the, the creatures, but there's this hidden world um, of creatures that are at very, very, at very best ambivalent towards humans. Um, there are some sort of helpful home spirits like Domovoy. Um, who sort of helps take care of the house and when you're not looking, but it's very transactional as well. So if you want a domovoy to look after you, you better, you know, leave some bread out. So, so it knows that it's appreciated. And there's often, you know, the, in, in some of the stories, humans have, um, some humans have developed a like very transactional, again, relationship with some of the um, supernatural beings, you know, maybe if you're a miner, uh, you can br bring some bread um, with butter, specifically with butter, um, to the uh, spirits of the mine, and then they will help you find the richest sort of places to dig, essentially. But if you betray them and you bring something slightly lower quality, then they're likely to bring the whole mountain down on your head. So, <laughs> so you, ha you, you know, if you, if you strike a bargain, you can't uh, really back out of it. So that's um, so so that's so that's it in a nutshell, right? So you can sort of give examples of the different spirits and, and all that, and and it's it's really rich mythology and it's really interesting. But I, for me, the spirit of it, the heart of it, is that darkness lurking everywhere, and the fact that you know the the world is not your friend. You're you're really up against it, um, and you have to know the rules and you have to know how to behave.
I, I love that transactional nature. And now I'm just picturing like the spirit being like, you betrayed me. You gave me bread with jam instead of bread with butter. <laughs> oh, no, the jam, but particular uh, legend. That was quite a funny one. Um, I think I spoke about it somewhere else before. So, but um so this guy made the deal that he's going to pull, put a lot of butter on bread for all spirits and okay. give them bread and butter. And his wife um, was a bit tight-fisted and she was just like, you know what, like butter is expensive and you put like a whole finger width of uh, of butter on the bread. Like, you, you know, it's just costing us so much money. Like never mind all the like diamonds and whatever he was bringing home, right? It's like, no, it's just, butter is just too expensive for us because they won't know any different. Put some mashed potatoes on the bread <laughs> and they won't know the difference. And the spirits didn't know the difference because we're not idiots. And the, <laughs> the result was uh, not favorable to anybody. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, so I'm also curious, uh, like, I know you talked a bit about strigas, but my understanding is there's not like this really comprehensive set of mythology about them. There's more kind of some room for you to invent your own. So I guess, how did you go about doing that? Maybe I'm incorrect. Maybe there is like a compendium of everything about strigas out there. There isn't really. I mean, there's different stories. Um, I wouldn't say a compendium, but they're not. I mean, to me, at least, it's just in, in the kind of traditional lore, they're not that interesting because they are just straightforward monsters. So, it, like, in the traditional stories, they're, um, they're almost like Slavic answer to vampires. So they're quite, they're, um, they have two hearts, sometimes two sets of teeth, depending on the story, and they're usually waiting in the forest to kind of jump down on you if you're passing through and just, you know, tear you to pieces, drink your blood, eat your innards, that kind of thing. And they are usually, so So I've seen um, different versions of this, but in some stories, Shigas are humans who were born with two hearts and so were destined to become monsters. And in some of the stories, there were humans who were cursed in one way or another, either in life or after death, they sort of would transform into strigas. And uh, what interested me uh, when I was writing The Second Bell was, of course, the former. So I was thinking, you know, if a child was born with two hearts and people either suspected or, you know, knew that this child was a monster, that child would presumably have a mother and she would have an opinion on the subject as well. Probably. <laughs> you know, so, so it's... Um, so I was just interested in, in how, you know, not everybody reacts in the same way when really pressed against the wall when it comes to rules of that nature, right? So there will be some people who will just give up a child because they'll think, and probably majority of people, to be fair, if, if you were conditioned uh, your whole life to believe that a sugar is a monster, sugars, you know, the, um, will bring catastrophe, on, on everybody you love, then you would not necessarily see that child as, um, as a child. You would just see it as the embodiment of everything you fear. But then, of course, the mother in my story sees her child and she can't see herself separate from her daughter. And so she chooses to leave. She, she, she leaves on sort of voluntary banishment with her baby. But she leaves not knowing if her child is evil or not. So she hopes that she'll be able to somehow help her daughter control it. But she, she's not leaving with any sort of plan. This is, um, there, there is this kind of trauma of, um, you know, someone who's just given birth. She's put against the wall. It's like, you know, are you staying with us or are you leaving with a monster and possibly be corrupted yourself in some unspecified way? And, you know, the, the, the strength of those social taboos is just so strong uh, that it's something I really wanted to explore about how um, even if you chose to leave with a child, which would not be the obvious answer by any stretch of imagination, then how would you go about bringing that child up? And how would you feel about, you know, any abilities that might manifest later? So, of course, the, the, Shigas, uh, the Shiga community in the mountains, they self-police extensively. Obviously, they, they are the same people as the mountain 
um, the people like sort of down below. So they believe in the same uh, superstition and they, they, they believe that they are evil. They believe that that second heart they have is a source of, you know, and, and it's, it's blasphemous almost. It's just sort of will, will bring catastrophe on everybody if they ever allow themselves to sort of let go and explore that other side. So that's why, you know, it, it doesn't really, I don't really say outright in the book necessarily what the powers are specifically, because, I mean, that's kind of the point. Like they don't know because they are not allowed to explore it. Even the hint of it is um, is terrifying to them. So that's sort of the, the strength of that kind of superstition is something that, I really wanted to kind of delve in deeper with that. Yeah, and I, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head for me there, is that the village of Strigas and the village of non-Strigas, they're really not that different for the most part. And except for, I mean, obviously the Strigas don't want to cast themselves out because, you know, they're Strigas. They have to live with that, deal with that, and like you said, very much self-police themselves, kind of to extreme measures to a certain extent. Yes, I mean, there's... Um... In, in, in the Strigas in the second bell, they have, um, Strigas have a sort of a shadow that moves in a slightly unnatural way. And um, it reacts to their emotions if they feel sort of extreme joy or anger, um, if they allow themselves to kind of like let go and, and not be disciplined about how they experience their emotions, then that sort of second heart can be a little faster and it, the, the, the shadow can even sort of become almost corporal. And if they try to explore their abilities in any way, their shadow can change permanently. And so any infraction um, is instantly uncovered in the community. Because if you as much as sort of try to learn what, what your second heart can do, uh, that will leave a mark on like this physical embodiment of, um, of of your sugar nature. Right. And I think that might tie somewhat into this because I am curious, like where the title, the second bell comes from. Um, titles are, are funny beasts. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it was not the first title. The first two were terrible. Uh, and then I sort of came up with a title before I um, signed with my agent. But um, I like this idea of a kind of a people using a metaphor for the sugar nature. If you're so scared, like when people are so scared of something, they tend to um, try and avoid saying the actual word even. So, you know, the, the way that for, um, for hundreds of years, people would never say the word devil. Right? Unless, like, it was a preacher or a priest or something, like, just really making a, making a point, you would not say words. So they had different um, different words for it. They would say "old scratch," yeah, or "old nick," because t to say the the name of the evil almost calls it upon you. So when both sugars and humans alike were so scared of what is sugar nature was and when they were so um i mean they were so terrified of it that they would not even allow anybody to explore what those powers could be whether they could have a positive impact on the community but that was so strictly forbidden that the whole um phenomenon of that second heart and what it could do would be sort of you you would use a, a euphemism for it as this it's the second bell Right, and if you hear it ring, that's when bad things happen. So there's also this. Um, I, I wrote like a, just before the book starts. There's this little. Um, I wrote like a nursery rhyme because I, I, I quite like the idea of children in Haintown sort of going around like in the sort of ring a ring of roses, right? Um, uh, sort of style, and just having having that little sort of nursery rhyme that ties in with a few of the sugars, which is uh, like. Uh, and, and it starts with bell, bell, second bell. So I thought that would be a good sort of title for the book. Yeah, no, I think that fits perfectly. Um, could you share at all what maybe some of those early titles were? Uh, 
<laughs> so uh, they were quite bad. So the first title was, um, I think, The Other Heart. Okay. Then I just looked, took a long, hard look at it and I realized that it sounded like a romance novel. And I thought, okay, you know what, well, this is just, that's a problem sometimes. You, you sort of, you come up with a title and it fits and it's like, oh, but it actually gives a different idea of what the book is about. And it's like, you know, same with a the cover. There was, you know, when people have like a very early design, you're like, this is a gorgeous picture, but it looks like a kid book. You know, and you, and so there's there are some elements that you know so sort of you, that instantly triggers. But oh, you know, th- th- this book belongs to this category, and maybe if I don't read books from this category, I won't even look at it, even if it is the kind of thing I I might be interested in. Really, so so you have to be very careful with titles. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's that editor and other side of the publishing experience coming in. Yes. So, I mean, the uh, the publishing team at Angry Robot liked the, the second bell, um, obviously. Um, so they were happy to use it. But I've heard a lot of my friends who were just sort of saying, I, um, you know what, this is not even close to what my, to what my idea for a title was. <laughs> and uh, that my or idea for a title was terrible. <laughs> so it's okay. <laughs> So, because you're 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 coming at it from a slightly different direction as a as a writer, and you're thinking like, oh, I want to tie it in with this element of the book and this this maybe this theme that sort of runs through the through the novel, and and it just would not sell. Right. That title. So people with more marketing experience have to step in and you know pry your hands away from the <laughs> from the unfortunate sort of choice that that you thought you'd made. I feel like that's probably one of the reasons why a lot of authors don't really get much input into their cover design. Although I think you might have had a little more than the average for your cover. Is that right? Oh, I had a lot, <laughs> which I was not expecting at all. I was not expecting at all. And they have an amazing design team anyway. So, um, but I, I was really keen because I do have some background in my, um, in, in sort of graphic design and, and I, I, I do find it very interesting. So I really wanted to have some input and, um, and they very graciously let me. Um, so yeah, it's just, um, you know, to begin with you, you fill in this form as a, as a, as an author sort of describing the book and describing certain interesting visual elements from the book. So I say, you know, there's this kind of animal, there's that kind of animal, you know, there's this and that. And, um, and I also like uh, at time, you know, send some pictures that I thought would be good, sort of as inspiration in terms of a kind of aesthetic. Okay. I show the kind of some. I send some images that I thought like this really captures the energy that I would hope for in in a cover. And you know, then they came up with it, and and then I was like, oh, but you know, this character's hair is curly, so <laughs> make her hair curly, and um, and, and, and yeah, but um. Over the, the with the fonts, I wanted to. Um, so my husband's interested in uh, sort of he, he collects some old Soviet things and like Soviet magazines and uh, and and he gave me some like really good examples of old kind of Russian fonts. So I sent them like this is like this looks like an old kind of uh, Russian font from a print. Can we make the title look a little bit like it? Just stylize it stylize the sort of title to, to, to look a little bit like this. And, and then they came out with this lovely, lovely design. And yeah, so I was very happy with that. You either absolutely love the design of your cover or you absolutely hate it. There's no middle ground. <laughs> when you're yeah, I can imagine. Well, hopefully you fall on the love side then, especially because that's fantastic that you had so much input into it. Yeah, I was not expecting it. So I was just like kept pushing. It's like, Will this be the moment when they'll tell me to fuck off? (laughs) And and they haven't. And so I'm eternally grateful. Great. Yeah. Well, the cover is beautiful. I am a big fan of the cover. I'm going to have to go and look at it again to appreciate the uh, the actual font of the title, because I know I normally just notice the pretty art. Please do. Please do. Because, you know, (laughs) a lot of thought went into that. Yeah. Okay. So now that, you know, you are a debut author, I'm assuming 
you probably have some plans to put more books out into the world at some point. So what are you hoping to... Oh, I do indeed. <laughs> what are you hoping to establish as your writerly brand? Are you, you know, still sticking with fantasy, uh, books featuring women prominently in various roles? You know, what are you thinking? Um, I definitely am interested in like women's sort of stories about it doesn't mean that it's like it's just books for women. Sure. Uh, I think it's important to make that distinction. It's not, um, it's, but I, I am interested in uh, sort of the underdog stories and historically women were sort of did fall into that category quite a bit. So, um, but I don't, as, as a brand, I mean, I would be very hesitant to say that, you know, oh, this is the brand of Gabriela Houston. It's just, I, I write fantasy books and uh, I would like to write some maybe other formats as well. I'd be quite interested in sort of write, writing comics at some point because that was my background as well. But uh, I tend to fall into speculative fiction, but I don't want... You know, the, the brand is something really about like how people see you. Sure. How people, and I don't, there's only so much I can do to influence that. Like, you know, people, people will see me and they will see my book and they, they'll decide, you know, what kind of an offer I am in their minds. So I just want to write stories that are of interest to me. And, you know, when I, I am quite focused, I've, I've written a few things um, that are in, um, that are focused around uh, sort of Slavic mythologies. So I've, I've written a, a couple of more, a couple more books, um, but we're sort of in the process of seeing if we can, you know, find a home for them. But I, that doesn't mean that I will only ever focus on, on Slavic mythology. I think I would get bored if I was just doing one thing. So, you know, I, I just want to do my thing. I just want to write the stories that are of interest to me. And if someone decides, well, that this is your brand then, um, then that's fine. As long as I get to write whatever I want to write, I don't care. Yeah, fair enough. I know uh, I you had a good point on, I don't think it was the most recent Bookish Take video. Maybe it was the one before the most recent one that's out where you're talking about, you know, if you're a romance writer and you write romance, but then your next book, you switch into like hardcore military science fiction, there's certain expectations that your audience has when yeah. they follow you from book to book. So is that something that you think about a lot? That is true. Um, that is something that my agent thinks about way more than I do. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to just write one type of thing because you don't want to pigeonhole yourself. But there's definitely certain sort of um, levels of decisions that you have to make as an author about if you do get yourself an audience and you work hard to get some kind of an audience for your sort of debut book. And then you come out with something that's completely just different genre, different narrative style, then it can alienate people to an extent, you know, also when it comes to actually selling it, which is, uh, let's not forget a very important, <laughs> just a little bit. Um, then your publisher might fall because they'll be like, well, we've invested all this money and you have invested all, you know, all this time into, but mostly we invested so much time and money into making sure that people recognize you um, in this type of book. So we would like to get a return on investment, please, in the form of at least one more book that sort of feels at least like, like your debut, uh, hopefully better, but you know. So there's all those considerations, but that's something that, you know, when you have an agent, you can sort of discuss it with them. I mean, that's, that's what they specialize in. They know what they can sell or they, they know what they hopefully can sell. Right. <laughs> and, um, and of course there's never any guarantees, like even really seasoned offers get their books rejected by publishers all the time. Yep. So, um, to 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 but obviously you also have to make a decision at some point like you know i want i don't want to just write this kind of thing you know if i write 10 books that are very similar in style will then i will i even be allowed <laughs> you know to write something completely different and you have like uh, robin hobb um you know that's her sort of um that's her pseudonym and but she started her career as a uh, I can't remember. Megan Lindholm? Megan, 
yeah, yeah. Megan Linton, right, as a as a sci-fi author. But and she was, um, you know, she she wasn't like a massively big hitter at that point. Um, and then she decided she wanted to write kind of epic fantasy, and that really didn't fit with what she was doing before. And she went and. You know, there's something quite courageous, which is completely. You know, she she got she she did a she got a pseudonym and she got a different agent for this as well, and just started the process from scratch. But that's not something that ideally you'd want to do. It's a it's a you know massive risk to take, and you know this is something that you might also want to have a conversation with your current agent, who might be more than willing to represent your books on on that different front as well so but but it's just interesting to to see you know when you when you're really established in as one kind of thing this is one route that you can take it's just especially if you really want to keep those two sort of brands separate i don't foresee myself wanting to do that at any point unless i decide that i you know suddenly want to write sort of gory crime novels all of a sudden or something which which would be quite different but in the end i feel like you know why <laughs> like I, I i want to write all kinds of books and i hope that they will have a wide enough audience to to allow me to to try different things yeah and i think you've kind of already tried something different don't you have a children's book in the work i do indeed so uh this is sort of currently being uh being looked at by different people so we'll see yeah well that's exciting <laughs> i have nothing to announce unfortunately <laughs> yeah but, yeah so this is quite early early on so we'll see yeah i know uh the publishing world i learned more and more moves way slower than you would think as a reader oh yes and at the moment with uh with a pandemic people are just reading so much slower than i would know usually and editors have just piles of piles of manuscript on their desks you know the, uh, so something that um john my agent told me was that um editors especially big publishers can have you know six seven eight manuscripts from agents sent to their inbox every day wow <laughs> and so those are not like you know when you when you send queries to sometimes hear about like you know agents getting a hundred queries in a week or something and and it sounds awful but you know vast majority of those will be you know not sort of a publishable quality they will not be ready and they will be instantly discarded so but it's not the case anymore with the on the editor side because they have those are they know that those are fully vetted books that have gone through usually extensive editorial process within the agency before they were even sort of sent out on submission. So those are all, you know, technically publishable books that another professional has looked at and said, you know what, I love this. It becomes way more difficult to sort of select in that way. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, that's that's why you hear the stories where, like, you know, your first few pages have to really grab someone because there's no way you have time to read 40 or 50 books a week, right? Like, even if you wanted to, that's just impossible. Of course. So it's, you know, the first few pages, but, you know, it's also like the pitch has to be, um, you know, when people are looking for agents, it's, your pitch has to be really good because you want, I, th I think when there's all those uh, Twitter events, when you're pitching uh, to agents in a tweet, that's really helpful because it really helps to, um, for your own purposes, to really isolate that key idea, that key hook in your book. And that's, that's what the agents are looking for. They're looking for that one sentence that tells them the essence of your book. And that will tell them if they even want to look at your first 10 pages. Right. Well, moving, I guess, a little bit away from your book, is there anything you've been reading recently that you really enjoyed? Um, so I just mentioned The Witch's Heart, which I literally just finished. Um, so I, I'm just about to start Holy Black, How the King of Elfheim Learned to Hate Stories. I have zero expectations because I think this is quite a different format to her usual books, but it's sort of a tie-in with uh, The Cruel Prince and the, the Wicked King sort of trilogy. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. But... Honestly, my 
to be read pile is a little bit insane at the moment. I have Hamnet sitting on a on the shelf and just kind of staring at me, making me feel guilty because I promised my friend that I would read it like a year ago when the twist came out. If if you aren't constantly drowning in a huge pile of books and constantly feeling bad about breaking promises to friends about what you're going to be reading, like, are you really trying hard enough? Mm. <laughs> well, I suppose you can always try try harder, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and it's always, you know, it's it's the things that you want to read and they get, like, pushed to the back because there's something, like, new and shiny and exciting coming out. And... Um, uh, we've been getting, especially when I'm home, you know, staring at my screen a lot. I have been sort of browsing for Waterstones sort of <laughs> <laughs> in front uh, a little bit too much, perhaps. And I was just like, you know, there's there's a lot of packages arriving at my at my house, and my husband sort of just groaning a little bit. I was like, yep. another another Waterstones sort of logo, but. It's, you know, well, this is something that you can also pass on, give, give to people. It's like, this is a book I enjoyed. So it's, it lives on. It definitely lives on. Exactly. They're, they're investments, right? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, when you write as well, you sort of um, realize, you, you know, while, you, while I'm reading for only for pleasure, I will only read the books that I actually enjoy reading. There is a lot that's coming out but you know in, in sort of tying into what we were saying earlier about like this being the golden age of fantasy there's a lot of books that are coming out that are very quickly becoming canon in one way or another and or that you suspect might become canon and you sort of need to know what they are and because you, you know also in terms of you know what's selling how how are the sort of narrative styles shifting and the fashions and narrative styles sort of change a lot. So if you only read 19th century novels, then, um, you know, that will influence your writing in a way that might not be very conducive to a, a long and successful career, to be honest, because it's, you know, people's uh, attention spans are shorter. <laughs> And uh, they, they, their tolerance for long and winding sentences is uh, less. So it's it's maybe not maybe fashion is is sort of putting it too uh, too strongly because I don't I don't mean the fa fashions in in terms of what you know there, there is a fashion for like vampire books there was at some point or something because those pass very quickly and and I think really think you should just write whatever you you were interested in writing because if you try to chase the trends then then you're always going to be a couple steps behind yeah i mean the next trends are already in editors inboxes or at their door or whatever exactly or, or already out the door you know yeah. it's, it's um uh, people sometimes uh forget just how long a process it is from a sort of even from sending a book to the publisher from publisher accepting the book to the publication date, it can be a couple of years. It can be more. So, you know, those books that are going to fall into the trend of this year are, have already been written. So, you know, I wouldn't chase after trends. I mean, you know, some people do. And, you know, if they self-publish and have very fast turnaround, you know, all the power to them. But I don't think I could do that. Even if I could get, you know, write something and, and have it published tomorrow, I don't think I would because you just, where's the fun in that? You just need to write the stories that you're interested in. But it is saying that it's also important to know what is being published at the moment and to kind of be really steeped into, in, in, in the context, wider context of what you're writing. Yeah, I mean, there's reading for fun, there's reading for craft, there's reading to keep up with the industry, and then, of course, you know, buying books is a separate hobby altogether. Yes, but it's fun should always be involved. Yeah, yep, strong agree there. Um, well, okay, so one way I always like to close out these interviews is just asking, what's one thing that you're excited about right now? One thing I'm excited about right now, that's a tricky question in times of COVID. Um, you know what, well, it's not book related, but I'm really excited about having purchased my tickets to go and see my family in Poland this summer. Haven't seen them in like coming up on two years. So 
really excited about that. Yeah, no, that is huge. And I hope that, uh, you know, everyone listening and both of us, uh, speedy access to vaccines and return to normalcy. So here's hoping. Yes, let, let, let's hope it becomes sort of, let's hope it's possible because sometimes, you know, sort of, <laughs> you get some worrying sort of um, um, worrying news on that front, but you can only hope. Yeah. So I'm just going to be excited about it and try not to worry. Yeah, I think that is uh, the correct approach. Well, okay, so that's everything I have for you. Gabriella, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been such a delight. And, and for me also, thank you. You can find Gabriella Houston on Twitter as Gabriella Houston, on YouTube as The Bookish Take Channel, or at our website, gabriellahouston.com. The second bell weaves together Slavic mythology and themes of motherhood into a compelling story that's full of heart. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyinn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's it for this week. Until next time.